Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in the headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 98, with the title, Striving for Fairness. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Pamela Permalo-Bass. Pamela is the EDI coach and consultant. And when I asked Pamela to describe her superpower, she said, the skill of intently listening with empathy. Hello, Pamela. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's an absolute privilege to be here this morning, particularly at the start of the year. This is one of my first meetings of the year. So it feels very, very exciting. So thank you very much. Yeah. And as we were saying in the green room before we, we've gone live, that we haven't spoken for two or three years. It's been, been absolutely fantastic to catch up and have a have a good natter before we recorded been. the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we needed more than the the designated 30 minutes to have a proper catch-up. We've had a good, yeah, too many years have gone by. Yeah, they have. Anyway, we've caught up now. So, Pamela, tell me about striving for fairness. Why is that important to you? So, Joe, I think, um, I mean, you've, you've known me for, for a good couple of years now, and I've spent... Most of my life and my working career, working in the field of diversity and inclusion, we've used the, we're using the word diversity, equity, inclusion more and more now in um, organisational spaces. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't language that was used. And um, I like the word fairness because I think um, it really brings out what, what, what we're, what I've, always strive to do on a daily basis both in my work and in my personal life and I think over the years it's been great that more and more people and professionals are on board in the DNI space. So yeah fairness is a I find sometimes it's a tough word because people want fairness but they also and they also want meritocracy but they don't always balance the two out fairly. You know, that's an oxymoron, I appreciate. People have their own perception of what fair means, don't they? Yeah, and I think um, it's you know it's quite um, it's quite a generic piece of language, fairness, because depending on your own experiences, whether it's cultural, societal, social, you'll have a different perspective of what fairness really means. But I think when we're when we're using for me when we're using fairness in in the world we're in right now in the UK when we're looking at it from a UK perspective, I think we can link it to issues around um, socioeconomic status. We touched on um, privilege um, as a concept in the green room, and there's also aspects of fairness that really permeate in organizations particularly organizations that are hierarchical so I've spent about 15 years working in the NHS 
and more recently in substantive roles as a DNI director in the NHS with several community-based organisations. So the hierarchy within the NHS and how that plays out absolutely will have different experiences for different people in those in those different roles. Yeah, I'm. I use the freedom principles. I mean, for those of you who haven't aren't aware, of the freedom principles freedom stands for fairness, respect, equity, or equality, dignity, and autonomy. So I'm 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 a great believer that fairness is is utmost because when we're dealing with people you have to believe in the process you have to you have to have an element of trust so i need to know that i can trust you to treat me fairly because if i haven't got that trust in you no matter what you say next i will never believe you or i I won't have that psychological safety i won't feel uh, i can bring my whole self to work whatever you mean by that so fairness is very fundamental I, i agree with you and it's sometimes we, we we end up battling each other's concept of fairness, don't we? Mm. And I think you know you touched on trust. That too is so hugely important in relationships and um, and within organisations. So uh, you know we uh, most most of you all will know around you know around issues around discrimination that organisations affect and. The NHS is no different to, you know, other organisations. So, so when we're thinking about actually, you know, who, who does speak up, who is listened to, how are things um, resolved and, um, you know, managed, having that trust in whether it's your line manager or whether it's the executive director or your CEO, you know, that's really, really important to know that you are going to be listened to. And you're going to be treated fairly. You're not going to be treated differently. You're not going to be treated mm. differently because of your role or what you know what you're raising or anything to do with a particular characteristic or your experience. So I think it's you know it's all hand in hand, isn't it? All all of these different these these key values that um, that we have. Yeah, it's. I mean, working in organisations such as the NHS, they're they're huge monoliths sometimes and made up of lots of disparate departments and different priorities different care needs different overheads it must be really difficult to try and create change in a way that is meaningful because so many people have so many different views of what inclusion means i was doing some work with i think it was morecambe bay that area there and they were doing a huge project on sticky floor where they recognised that a, a, a section of, of the demographic of their employee base were never promoted. They were never getting past entry-level positions. Mm. And the, the sticky floor was holding people back. And you could see quite clearly that people who are white escaped that, that lower tier, whereas people who are people of colour, low economic, socioeconomic status, even though they're perfectly qualified and able to do the role, for whatever reason, they didn't progress from the organisation in the same way. So it's about how do we create equity in the system mm. to ensure we're amplifying people who are stuck or not seen or or not not viewed as as capable for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think, um, so I... I um... I've been working in organisations for so long now, and I remember when you know when we first started 
looking at issues like that, your example of sticky floor issues, there was a lot of emphasis on individuals upskilling themselves, you know, um, improving their CVs, getting better at interviews, et cetera, et cetera. And over time, it became more and more clear that it was to do with systemic structures within organisations. And that is still the place where I still sit sort of professionally in in my um, views of fairness and where it should sit. Absolutely, individuals play a part, but they are not key in dismantling unfairness within organisations. It has to be an organisational structural decision to actively do things differently. So the work that I was involved in in the NHS, you know, when, when we looked at uh, specific data sets. So, for example, we we use a data tool called the Workforce Race Equality Standard. And there's another data set called the Workforce Disability Standard. And those two standards, historically, with regards to data and recruitment and retention and promotion, they have always been the data set across pretty much all NHS organisations where there is huge disproportionality when we're comparing it to the uh, white white British employees. And even if you break it down to white British male employees or white British female employees, there's a huge disproportionality. So it's a good piece of data set to, to really evidence how unfairness plays out in organisations. Yeah, when I was listening to the stats that I was a party to the presentation, I was I left the room with more questions than answers. Mm. I wanted to speak to people who were in those demographics where they weren't progressing and say, "What do you think the problem is?" Because I was asking, I was asking the people who do the support. I said, "Well, what are the people who are getting stuck, Phil? What are they?" I said, "Well, we don't know. We just got the data." I said, "Well, surely we want to get into the into those into those examples and say, look." So you're you're in this role. Is there a reason why you perceive you haven't progressed? Is it is it a a limiting belief, imposter syndrome? Is it a lack of drive, or is it just purely that they come come to work, do a job, they're happy with what they've got, they don't have ambition? Mm. So we're trying to create systems and fixing systems where we haven't necessarily engaged with the people who are affected to ask them what why they have why they haven't progressed. As you said, the original in in, in the past we were pushing the problem back to them and saying, you need to progress yourself. You need to work hard. You need to get qualifications. And they obviously weren't. So what, what is, is it a community thing? Is it a limiting belief thing? Is it just a, a societal expectation thing? Or is there other genuine reasons why people are being pushed down and held back? Mm. I think it's, um, it, it's a complicated answer. And I think it, there are absolutely key themes that will just think about NHS organisations specifically, there are key themes within NHS organisations as a whole, but then there'll be different reasons and specific cultural differences within different NHS organisations, whether it's to do with ge- geography, the services that they that they have, the size of organisations. There's a lot of complex structural organisations out there as well. And, you know, 
most well even people who work in the NHS don't necessarily understand the architecture but it's um you know for everyday people it's not something that we really consider you just think of the NHS as a place where you go to be treated to be you know healed cared for it's a it's a huge beast and it's incredibly complicated so I think all of those different aspects of it gives different reasons why unfairness plays out and I think you're absolutely right Joe that the more you become curious and learn about it the more you think actually hold on I don't get this it's just so much there's there's so much that I want to know here there's so much to unpick there's yeah, there's far more questions. And I've I have spent 15 years asking those questions. And the work that I'm doing now as a consultant, I'm working with NHS organizations, going into very sort of specific pieces of work with them, which is quite different to the the type of work I was doing in, in my substantive role. Because you know, people always say that data tells a story, and I think I'm always frustrated, but we never actually hear the story. We, we hear the headlines, we hear the, the opening chapter, but we never actually dive down. I think that, that was the frustration I felt. And I think you're, you're echoing the same thing is that we've got lots of data. We know, we know lots of starting of the story, but we don't actually have the, have the, the real answers. And that's the challenge, I think, in, in most EDI work is mm-hmm. trying to uncover the story and what are the inequities, what are the challenges. And yes, a lot of it is, is systemic, and based on historical privilege and, and power structures, but how do we break out of that cycle? Is, is the challenge that we, we all face in this in this in this sort of EDI sort of sector, if you like? And um, you know, what, one of the things I and you'll probably uh, probably be in agreement that you know the more we look at our society, and um, again, we're looking at um, talking about UK specific societies our society right now and look at inequity and how that plays out in our society it absolutely will resemble organizations so you can't you know detract from what is happening out there right now and I think that's that's hugely important to constantly remember that yeah we just look at what's going on in the political sphere at the moment where the the language being used around refugees entering our shores, fleeing from terror, fleeing fle- fleeing for their lives in many cases, how the dehumanising language mm. used to describe them, and then the government is looking to turn the boat around and ship them to Rwanda, mm. and I don't want to have any, I don't want to be guilty of having a bias against Rwanda. I don't know the country. I don't know the people. I think there's a there's a kind of a political demonization of Rwanda as a country saying it, it's it's third world it can't be any good we we're, we're dumping our rubbish somewhere mm. that's I think that could be disrespectful of a country so I don't, I don't want to get into the debate whether Rwanda it's just the the language the government's using to sort of devalue these people mm. and see them as 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 not worthy of of our support mm. It's so, yeah, white wing mentality, isn't it? Yeah, no, it absolutely is, and it's um, it feels like it's um, you know, it's an opportunity to sidetrack the conversation because when we think about actually how much money has been spent on the Rwanda deal, 
and the cost of that so far and actually how many people have gone to Rwanda. I think the, la- the latest figure is that there's been more home secretaries that have gone to Rwanda than actual refugees. Um, so, you know, if, if, you know, society and our the people that were, were interested in the political debate of, around this were interested in the cost of this particular exercise and if that money was to go into, I don't know, housing, into services like the NHS or into education, you know, key services, policing. Actually, you know, we, it just, to me, it feels like a, you know, it, it, firstly, it's a complete waste of money, but it also is sidetracking from all the other um, underfunded resourcing that's going into the public sector, which, um is is so much needed really in um in particularly some very key areas in our country it it, it must have a, a psychological impact on people where they're hearing you know you said quite rightly that the what's going on in the in in society is the macro and that impacts the micro if you like of the organization or what's going on inside organizations and people's psychology and mental health if you're hearing all of this dehumanizing language, the demonizing language, these stereotypes, these biases, the xenophobic type remarks that, that stem from Brexit. We've got a population who seem to be leaning and, and certainly a mainstream media who lean towards stealing jobs from the British, whoever they may be. It, it, some sort of ethnic sort of superiority around white people being denied opportunity. I mean, we, we talk here, sorry, we're talking about fairness and equity. Is is the the everyday white person feeling marginalised by, and that's why they're fighting back? Is is that kind of the, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So again, um, there's been a lot of um, work around white working class boys specifically um, in urban areas. And I think that's been going on for, well, definitely in all of my time in the NHS. Whether that's really sort of played out in policy change, I'm not sure because I haven't, my experience is not in education. So um, I would like, I would like to believe that there is work in, you know, in identified areas. In, In my sphere of career, so in the NHS, it's definitely been an area hasn't been a focus which I think absolutely should you know I think when the Equality Act came came on board socioeconomic was going to be a protected characteristic but it got thrown out at the last I think it was literally a couple of months before the act came in into play and I think if that was part of the work around diversity and inclusion and sort of um, baked in into the sort of process we would have absolutely looked at white working class boys and I say boys it's actually a specific group that's been identified it's around so it's up to up to 18 and then post 25 so there's like I said there's quite a lot of research around that and looking at that and how that plays out into organizations whether it's around people you know finding it difficult finding jobs or are in work and they're, they're having the same issues as you described in a mes side around sticky floor you know we look at ethnicity when we tend to look at ethnicity and disability when we look at promotions and again absolutely missed opportunity to not look at white working class 
um, groups and their journey around career progressions in, in um, you know, in organisations. So, so yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's an area that, yeah, it feels like it's on, it's on the sideline, really. I think people like us in this field of work, we're aware of it, but we don't get necessarily asked to do that work. Yeah, it, it's it's tough sometimes in the EDI space because by amplifying and, and giving equity to certain demographics, it almost feels like sometimes you're pulling other people back because that's the perception they have, even though equity is all about amplifying not and not pulling other people back so you're trying to bring people up to the same level rather than bring people down to your level it, you always feel like you're you're losing something by somebody else getting more and again you know organizations will resource different pieces of work or there would be different pieces of work that are perceived as more important at that at that one time so the balance has always been um, when we're looking at dni is looking at all of the um, groups. So, you know, again, just sort of giving my example of the NHS, you know, one of, one of the things I always looked at when I worked in organisations was the workforce demographics. So looking at workforce demographics, looking at, and then I looked at census demographics and seeing how that married up. And most good organisations tended to marry up and be similar to their communities because, you know, if it's similar to the community... It will be similar to the patient community, generally speaking. There's huge disparities in that. So, so again, it sort of it, it opens that space into understanding where the priorities are for those organisations. If then, if their workforce is not reflective of their local community. Yeah, I, I was into work with some housing associations probably last year, the year before, where they were really struggling to find good people in their hourly paid roles of care workers. And the analysis they did identified the fact that most of their care homes and, and, and service provision locations tend to be in affluent type neighborhoods and areas. Mm. And most of the people they wanted to attract to work in those places were some many miles away. Right where they lived and the transport links between where people were living in their target demographic for people to recruit, the transport links were poor or expensive. So people who they wanted to attract couldn't actually afford time and money to mm. come to work at that location mm. when they're being paid minimum wage or, or, or living wage. So they identified the fact they needed to put on a, a kind of a, a staff bus, collect people in the mornings, um, bus people in, because that way, that equity, if you like, would, would relieve it. But it was, as you're saying there, it's it's important to look at your demographic of your, your territory, your locale, and then lay on top of that the demographic of your, your, your staff and the people you serve mm. and make sure there's an alignment there. Otherwise, you find there's a disconnect and you... The people you want to, to to work in the organization can't afford to work there because there's no way to get, get, into, get into work every day. Well, I think that example is a great one because, you know, public transport is expensive now. So if people are on minimum wage and then they're going to have to fork out for the transport cost to get to and from work, where if they can get a job much closer to where they live, yeah, 
you know, these are the sort of things that organisations need to consider when they're thinking about, you know, but, but yeah, who, who they want to work in their organisation. There's so many nuances, mm. isn't there? So, and not really understanding those types of things, what, you know, with regards to the areas that you're serving, I don't. I just don't think organisations necessarily have have the chance to really think through all of this first. It tends to be mm. something that they'll think about afterwards when they think, "Oh, well, actually, hold on a minute. You know, I can't. We can't get anybody. Or we're only in that particular example. It could be only middle class affluent people are applying for work here, or they're 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 volunteering because they don't have money. So the people who you want to apply aren't applying because it's too expensive to work there. And the people who would be able to get there easily wouldn't want a job because it's low-paid work and they, they don't see that as something suitable for them. It's, as, it's, it's asking, again, getting the data and asking the questions, why aren't these people applying? Mm. And what's the barriers? Because we can also look into the nature of people who are in that demographic where they are taking hourly paid, low-paid work, unskilled or or partially skilled work. They probably have childcare. They have care responsibilities. They have multiple challenges around that. They're maybe the single parent. Maybe they're in a dysfunctional family. There's a whole load of issues that are going on. That whilst they, they'd love a great job, they just physically, able, actually can't can't engage with it because it just doesn't work for them. Mm. And I think we need to look at those sort of ways of you know, we talk about equity a lot. How do we bring equity into not just the recruitment process, but also the employment process? And how do we look at those those challenges? Mm. I think also, I, I'm, I'm sure the NHS have this view as well, is that we have a social responsibility to get people into work and to get people into good work, reliable work, and to make people or allow people to be productive in society. So I think all organisations, no matter if you're in commercial or public sector, you have a responsibility to make sure you are providing work for the community as well as drive profit for shareholders. So I think um, we, um, you, the, we touched on travel um, in the green room and um, your train journey. And it really, you know, your example of people having to physically get to work is something that I don't think we spend a huge amount of time really considering. And I know in the pandemic, when everyone was working at home, there were lots of lots of groups of people that I remember talking to, but for some of them it was a huge benefit working at home. And again, people who would have who identified with particular characteristics, so women with young children at home, so that flexibility of either looking after children or dropping children off at nursery or school, and um, particularly when the schools um, were opened. So to think area. Things like this, where it becomes really important to for working women, actually commuting and physically getting to work and back is is an extra. It's an extra layer on on someone's day. So if they're able to work from home and they've got that capacity to do that, you know why if they you know if they have to commute into London, which is like I don't know where we're all based in um, Hampshire. You know, it's like an hour and a half, two hours. So why would they do that if they could work from home and pretty much do exactly the same as what they're they're doing if they were in London? So, so I think that whole thing around commuting and what your workforce looks like and how you retain your workforce. So it's actually so it's one step back. How you get how you 
enable diversity within your workforce, but also how you retain your workforce. I think that's, they're all significant questions to ask around how we work. I know there's a real push for people to get back in the office, which I've written a couple of different LinkedIn posts about that. And, um, you know, my view is that absolutely understand why an organisation would say that. And depending on what your role is, there will absolutely be reasons. So, if you know, if you're frontline clinical facing role, most of those are better placed physically seeing patients as opposed to virtual you know, sessions with patients, although some can be virtual, but the majority of time it's better to see people, you know, in person, face to face. But if you're a PA or if you're an administrator or I'm trying to think what other roles, you know, computer-based jobs, you can do that at home. You don't need to physically be in an office. So, uh, so yeah, a bit controversial, I know, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it really impacts certain groups yeah i mean my my theory is that it's largely political the government or the the people in power need to put money back into the system so if you've got nobody traveling into the office nobody's commuting the trains become unviable london underground becomes lacks viability which is what we're seeing here the government's having to prop up tfl by billions to to keep it afloat because people aren't traveling into London. So there's a huge societal pressure to get people back to what they were doing because the entire country's infrastructure was based on people traveling around and, and going to work. If everyone sits at home every day, all of the infrastructure, all of the cafes, the coffee shops, the little places in, in the city, they're just not needed anymore. Therefore we have a unemployment rising because the, everyone's working from home. So we're, we're, the society wasn't ready to, to, to re-engineer its whole viability of, of economic sort of cash movement, if you like, as a result of the pandemic. And I think that's why they tried to put this uh, help out to eat out, whatever the scheme mm. was, to try and get people eating out again. Because people backed up the pubs, they backed up the cafes, they backed up the restaurants and done living at home. So I, th- I think that's, a, that, that's part of it. The government went, oh, we've been, we've been too, too keen to push people away. And now... We've got a huge problem now. We've got economic vacuums in places where people aren't going back. So I think, I think a lot of that drives it. We've got business owners who have huge, great buildings that are empty. Mm. If the buildings are empty, you don't need cleaning staff. You don't need door staff. You don't need security. So again, you've got a whole sector of, of people not being employed. So I, I think, I think that's the driver in some respects. Yeah, no, I agree. I do agree with you, but I do think a lot of the. Uh, you know, these sort of economic arguments are so short-sighted. You know, there, there are so many other ways of creating, you know, we're talking about a capitalist society and there's so many other ways that we all can contribute into society financially. So it's not mm. just getting on a train. You know, we could go to a um, independent cafe to where where we live or, you know, most people who work at home aren't, are not, you know, they, they've, they've got into habits to to manage their well-being so they are out and about and they are doing different things so you know the argument if we really looked into it which I'm sure no one has done is um you know that I'm sure there are other areas where the economy is thriving and might not be thriving in the small cafe in London but it might be thriving in a small cafe independent cafe in Hampshire so um 
you know, I, I think it's, I think all of this is, and, and what we do find with, and we're, you know, we're talking about current government, it's very, very short-sighted, it's very immediate, you know, there's not much consideration into different aspects of decision-making, and obviously we're seeing some of that in the COVID inquiry. And for those of us who worked in the public sector um, during COVID, and it, I had the privilege of working in the pandemic, we were able to see that firsthand, some of those poor decision-making processes. So I think this is, you know, this is part of it, really. I think the whole push to get people back into work, yes, I think you're right, it is driven politically, but I think the economic argument is a poor argument. I think for, for them, it's a very poor, you know, there's a lot of lack of thought in that argument. I I, I completely agree. And whilst I understand the reasons, I or what I perceive are the reasons, I mean, one thing I I was saying when there was this push back to go to the office, and I and, I, and the only arguments were, well, what about the water cooler conversation, the mentoring? If you're in early career, you 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 lack that sort of experience by mixing with people and the osmosis that occurs. And I say I completely get it, but the what you can't say is the the equation and the answer to every equation is you must go back to the office. Mm. The equation must be. What is the most efficient? Where's the best way of doing it? Going back to the office is one outcome that can deliver that requirement. Mm. If you start with that being the only outcome, that's what you focus on. Mm. We step back. We've got the metaverse. We've got AI. We've got uh, Zoom. We've got Teams. There's a far better way of collaborating. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in that. And you know, you, you, the example you had about surgeons. We've got surgeons doing laparoscopic procedures with robots mm. from the other side of the world controlling the operation because when this when this actually in the operating theater and this is my lay appreciation of what I see on telly that they're looking to at computer screen and they're controlling things with 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 robot arms and doing the work that way they don't actually need to be in the same room in the same country in the same time zone yeah yeah so if if a doctor can do that dentists can do that everybody can do that it, we just it's just about evolving mm. our communication skills yeah. And the other thing I say is, you know, people say, well, it's about our culture. We need, we need, we need our culture, people to come in and feel like experience. And I said, and I say, well, well, actually, I want my culture like my pension. Mm. I can take it with me when I go to another organization. Mm. So what I can have is I can build my own home life culture around my family, around my, my community, around my own gym and my own coffee shop. And I can, I can consume my culture. Mm. and the way I want it and I can just pick and choose whichever company I want to work for wherever they may be and I don't have to leave my culture behind but what you want me to do is rip my life out of my family travel for two and a half hours each way five hours a day Mm. to experience your culture when I've got a perfectly good one I could be investing in the home so that's that's my argument around this culture thing let me let me have it like my pension I could take it with me no I like that I I like that analogy yeah, and, but that seems to be the argument. It's like, no, but I, uh, you know, you're a solopreneur. You work from home largely. I'm I'm a solopreneur. I largely work from home. It's probably 80, 20, 90, 10 sometimes, 10% in the office, 10% with clients. I know I could work perfectly productively, and I think it's almost insulting to people to say you're not as productive remotely. Mm. It's, it's an insult. People no, are. I, I, I find that very insulting. 
Although I, I, I think the, I would say, you know, for you and I, we're at different stages of our careers. So I think for those at the early stages of their careers, I think it's really a mid-career as well. I say early stages of mid-career. I think it's really important to not necessarily be in an office. I think to be engaging on as many different ways as possible to learn from others. So, you know, in thinking about, you know, that whole mentoring experience and how you can see leadership particularly if you're you know career driven I think that's really important to explore as many different ways so if you're just working at home you know mainly I don't you know I absolutely wouldn't you know I don't, I don't think that's good I think you do a combo of lots of different things whether it's an in-person conference a couple of times a year going to some workshops or you know catch-ups with coffees doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in the office every day, but I think having a having a mixture. But yeah, people like us, Joe, you know, we're we're sort of we're sort of well versed at what we should be doing with our work. So, you know, all of these tools we've acquired, haven't we? So we know mm. to go and meet somebody in person or when to attend an event or go to something. So again, acquiring that skill with with our experience, I think um you know, we're we're at, we're at a diff- different stage, and we can make different choices. Yeah, oh, I complete I completely agree. And yeah, there are times in my career when I needed people around me. I needed to learn. I needed to be mentored. I needed to pick up stuff. And the osmosis was necessary. You're, you're completely right, and I'm not negating that need. And we also have to remember that I think sixty percent of the workforce, if not more, do roles where you have to physically touch something. So assembly work, manufacturing, hospitality, mm. production lines, all these kind of people, you, you can't at the moment do those remotely, mm. even with computer, there's no, you know, largely not computer controlled remotely. So we have to recognise there is a, an inequity here of the ones who can and the ones who cannot. Mm. So I think there's also the, the in it together type mentality, where if you've got half the office who have to be there for various reasons, mm. then it's only fair that everybody should kind of be there as well. So all, all together. So I, I didn't get the kind of socioeconomic mm. and the, the needs for us as humans to to get together and collaborate and be together. So I, I do get it. I, I just I find that yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I hate stereotypes. I hate. Big blanket assumptions and decisions, you know, thou all shalt because thou shalt, sort of thing, mm. without the, the the granularity and being person centric. And you, know, you work at the NHS, and mm. being person centric is so important because if you start to generalise, mm. you make poor decisions because every person is different. And looking at the the needs of individuals is should be should be a corporate responsibility. Mm. Yeah. No. Um... And there's so many different, I think there are so many different sort of work cultures that don't take into account all the nuances of individuals. So I, I you were, as you were talking, I was recalling an example and it wasn't even that long ago. It was probably, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, I was working for a company in central London, so commuting in and out of London. And on a Friday night, there was a cocktail bar opposite the offices. And that's what they did. Friday night, cocktails. And most people stayed until, you know, early hours. And it was, you know, obviously social time. And it was a given that you go to these cocktails. And if you didn't, it's, oh, you're not going to cocktails. So, again, just 
that sounds great if you like cocktails, but say, you know, you don't drink alcohol. Are there mocktails there? What about you don't want to be in those types of environments or for religious reasons or cultural reasons? No, you know, nothing there for any, any difference. What about if you've got a family, you need to get back for them? Again, nothing about the family. What about, I know, disability, you need to, you know, the public transport that you need to get on but at two o'clock in the morning is not running. Again, nothing. So, it's, you know, each, you, you, it sounds, cocktails on a Friday sounds lovely, but actually when you're thinking about, you know, is it right for everybody? Probably not. And there are lots of different uh, reasons why it's not right for everybody. I came up drinking, uh, I think, 723 days ago, thereabouts. Yeah. It was January a couple of years ago I gave up. And you suddenly realise how much the world is orientated around a social that involves alcohol. Mm. And I, I find it incredible. I, I never, you know, you know, we talk about privilege, but you, you don't realise the... The, the water you swim in until you're not in that water anymore. Then you suddenly step out and go, well, hang on a minute. I, I now see this. And as a non-drinker, I've now woken up to how much of our society revolves around a drink somewhere, mm. even in cultural conversations, you know, oh, let's go for a beer one night. Let's go for a glass of wine. Let's, I don't drink. And they say, well, we can come along and have a, have a, have a lemonade. Well, why do I want to go to a pub mm. where everyone's drinking and have a lemonade? Why can't we go to Costa or have a coffee, nice, nice, nice coffee somewhere? Yeah, but we want to go for a drink. No, no, we don't have to. So, so it's it's trying to reorientate. And I've I've walked away from events purely because they have a, a boozy undercurrent to them. Mm. I think, well, do I want to turn up to this evening where after about half an hour, everyone is starting to slur, everyone's starting to it, get, it gets kind of icky and and, yeah. and 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 that kind of drunken environment. I think. No, you're not funny. It's, it's, it's no fun to be sober. So yeah, I walk away from things. I, if, and that's for personal reasons, not religious reasons or any other reasons or health reasons necessarily. So we, we are excluding people or, or, or defining the norm. And that's our cultural fit, isn't it? We keep talking like, you must fit into this or you're seen as no fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, um, and I, I remember this cocktails evening. So Friday cocktail night, you know, gently, very gently, sort of questioning, you know, is this so, you know, is this sort of being inclusive and are we thinking about everybody here? So, oh, yeah, yeah we've got mocktails. Oh, yeah, we've, you know, it's um, disability access. And so everything I said, there was like a reason. So it's still in a cocktail bar in central London, Friday night, and all the things that you said around that sort of cultural experience, you know, people getting drunk, being in that but, you know, there might be some flirtations going on with people in, you know, but all, it's just, you know, you just think, actually, do people really want to be in, in those environments? Really? I don't know. I, I, I mean, apparently some extrovert, yeah, if you're an extrovert, uh, I'm quite happy being an introvert who, who's happy to go out. But some people do thrive on those environments. They, 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 they want to bounce off like a pinball in a pinball machine and have all that social interaction. That's where they get their energy, but yeah there's a good 50 of the population don't no no well this is it and and also because I would describe myself as an extrovert but I I feel like I just don't want to do that type of stuff anymore you know I've got other things that I enjoy doing you know so so again it's it it's allowing for all of that really so but yeah I I agree there is still very much 
when you know when you when you consciously think of alcohol you become more aware that we are still very much in that alcohol sort of rich society and a lot of it is based around drinking so even gifting so again one of the things um, that I gen I, I say I sound like I'm a bit of a misery really but Christmas time when people give out um, gifts to their colleagues and they give out bottles of wine ice or bottles of gin I say well, you know have you thought about doing non-alcoholic or something different I'm going no no it's nice it's nice getting a bottle of wine isn't it or a bottle of gin I said well not for everybody so um but yeah, I think they probably thought I was a bit of a misery, really, a party pooper. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I'm—I know you can get alcohol-free gin, alcohol-free beer, alcohol-free wine, and I—I I don't need an alcohol substitute. You know, it's, it's like a, a mocktail. I wouldn't drink that normally. You know, why? So you're, you're calling it a mocktail to make it sound like yeah. it's got like it's an alcohol substitute. Why don't you? Why don't you give me a coffee? So. I've also sort of had the same sort of thought about veganism or vegetarianism and thinking, do I want to consume my plant-based food as in the shape of a sausage? You know, why do yeah. I have to have a plant-based food in the shape of a sausage? <laughs> why can't I have something that's plant-based, that's plant-based from the ground up? Because you see so many times where you go to these functions where the veg- vegan or vegetarian option is a poor facsimile of everybody else's the, ex- the experience is just mediocre and i, I feel and I, i'm not vegan or vegetarian but I, I i will often go for the vegan or vegetarian choice because when it's done right it's far more creative and inspiring than a meat dish sometimes because people have to have to work harder at it and i i feel so sorry that we're, we're not catering properly for celiacs other dietary requirements it, it's always a poor relation and it's almost it's just so unattractive. I just feel so, so, so kind of privileged as a as an eater, if that's a, an omnivore who eats most things. And mm-hmm. I just feel so disappointed for people who have to have that lib sandwich with a bit of cellophane over yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah. their that's their gluten free option. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. There is, um, and they, I think they tend to be sort of like conference function type things. So, you know, most go to a nice restaurant. There are normally good options for non-meat eaters. Yeah. Might so not be I, good I, options, but there are options, good options. I, I've made a conscious decision to minimise my my dairy, my mm. cow dairy in, in, intake. So I, I tend to use plant-based oat milk or almond milk or other, other milk. And... You are sometimes, and it's becoming better in coffee shops. It's becoming better than it ever has. They have they have the options there. You still got to pay extra for it. It's still it's still penalised for it. It's you still got to. It's and they assume you've got an allergy. No, no, it's just a preference. It's 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 okay. It's a preference. You go to natural trust. They 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 put this little sticker on the cup so it doesn't get contaminated. With it. It's like, no, no, it's, it's it's just a preference. I'm not. But they, so some people are gearing themselves up for it. I think. It's important that we start to, when we think about EDI, it's that uh, we talk about fairness, respect, we talk about inclusion, all these things. Actually, it's small details, yeah. that psychological safety, that inclusion, how do I feel? Yeah. And the belongingness, I'm a great believer in belongingness. When you're walking into a place and you feel it's for you, yeah. because they thought about your needs as an individual, yeah. not just a broad brush, you'll be okay sort of thing, or you'll adapt around us. Mm. Actually, we're bending for you a little bit here as well. 
Mm. That's what I think a lot of organisations miss that nuance between inclusion and belonging. Mm. I think there's, there's, an, there's an attempt, isn't there? There's an absolutely attempt to get that, but it's so variable in organisations. And I think, you know, it's variable on lots of different levels. So, some, you know, there, there will be organisations in some areas, they're excelling, they're doing really, really well, and everyone feels great. Mm. There might be other functions or departments or even customer-facing services where it isn't. So it's so variable. There, there still is that lack of consistency. And I think that's um, probably an area where probably needs the, you know, the, the, the most impotence. impetus is the consistency. Yeah in that how people feel in environments and organizations there's, there's a book or or there's a, a a well-known story based on airlines and it, it's the the coffee stain on the tray table so if you get onto an airplane you pull the tray table down there's a coffee stain the coffee ring on the tray table what does that say to you if they can't clean the tray mm. do they service the engines Mm. do they do the flight check do they do this mm. so sometimes when you're looking at these small little details you think, well it's only it's only it's only a coffee stain mm. actually it shows the systemic process and thinking of the organization they don't care about the hygiene level right at that beginning so what does it say about the rest of the process and i think edi is, is like that for me if you if you're not showing equity creating focusing on belongingness around in a person-centric way for everybody mm then that shows it's tokenistic or it's it's you're not following through to every detail in your systems. Mm. So it's it's that coffee stain on the on the on the tray table is the indicator of how how much you care about people. I think that's that's what I, I want to see in organizations is that deep, really real care about how your experience of working here or being a customer or being a service user or being whatever it may be. And that's the the fairness and inclusion, the belonging element for me. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I was just thinking about my experience in the NHS and the clients that I work with. I think to have that level of detail and nuance is as absolutely aspirational for most organisations because it's you know there's so much other work to do. You know. But, need to make sure that the um just think about that airline analogy to make sure that the cu- the customers the, the passengers on the previous flight are off the flight it's you know it's it's that type of stuff that needs to happen mm. first before we get to the cleaning up bit there's yes. so much other work to do oh yeah no completely uh, it's it's interesting when you start thinking about that coffee stain and when you look around the world and see it you know you walk into a restaurant and every free table has got dirty trays on it. Mm. So they're, they're too busy servicing new people and then there's no capacity for them to sit. And you think you've got to try and balance your front, your back, your middle. So just observing how operations work around trying to create this balance. And I, and I think that that's, you get so locked in, you know, you become blinkered into to, to your, to your, your focus. You often don't step back and, and, and sort of look at the other systems as well. So. And I think um, you know, you know that, that that part of it is really hard for people when they're in organisations to take that step back and see what else is going on, because you're you know you're immersed in what you're doing, and by you know no sort of reason 
at all regarding yourself. We could use the word unconscious bias or all the other aspects of EDI language. You know, if you're so immersed in what you're doing and it's impossible to step away, it's very hard for, for people to really sort of think about what, what else is going on. Mm, there it is. We were chatting just before we went on. Uh, uh, I noticed in the show notes that you, you put in that you're a, a Bregman fan and you mentioned Humankind and I'm also a fan of his other book, Utopia for Realists. There's yeah. some really great stuff that comes out of that. The thing mm-hmm. that I always remember from Utopia for Realists is, is thought about universal basic income, yeah, UBI, yeah. and how this this perception that poor people can't be trusted with money. Yes. That's why they're poor, mm. actually. When you look at people who have less money, they're more diligent and, and, and focused mm. on budgeting and, and careful. Mm. A, a person who's wealthy will, will squander more money than someone who is not wealthy ever does in their entire life mm. in, in an hour sort of thing. So, And it was all about this example where if you gave people an underlying basic income, they would then it would allow them to escape the sticky floor, which we talked about earlier. And then once you once you elevate yourself up Maslow's triangle, you stop having to worry about your house and your your food and what, what's happening today. You can think about next week. When you can think about next week, you start thinking about next month. Once you start planning, you then have you then have agency and and power over self. Mm. Otherwise, you're just reactive. And the, the whole concept behind his, his his first book was really inspiring to me. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd recommend anyone who listens to us on this podcast to read any of his books or even connect with them on LinkedIn because he's um, he writes some really interesting posts and and links you know history to sort of current uh, you know current perspectives of societies and he looks at mm. different types of societies across the world which I think is hugely fascinating. But yeah, I think that your example about that, you know, the, the sharing of wealth. And one of the things he does is he's, I can't remember what the charity is called, but it's, um, it's, and it's called like poverty, some global poverty, something like that. I have to find the name of the charity. But uh, the expectation is that regardless of what you earn, you give X amount of money. And I know there are religions, different religions that operate like that as well. So there is something about, being altruistic being considerate and actually just giving what you know what you can and so he he kind of his 10 percent or 20 percent of his income is given away and that's it so he and he'll just live off what, whatever he has and and there you know I, I think ultimately one of the things that resonated with his writing and, and my interests was around striving for a fair equal society where hierarchy i mean i think the other but he talks about utopia so he absolutely is a utopic view where there is no hierarchy there is no socioeconomic um, groups there is no class you know we all have the same you know we all have the same money we also live in similar types of accommodation we're all paying similar utility charges so so ultimately, that that's his sort of you know his quest for the future is that that fair society. But even if we look at utopia in Star Trek, there's still hierarchy in Star Trek, even though the concept of money and and poverty is is, is has been eradicated, if you like, in that in their utopian twenty fifth century, whatever it may be. But yeah, so the, the, 
it's hard to escape hierarchy, like creating a, a common base. And it's not, not, not the, the communism view of the world. It's kind of, as you say, a more utopian, statusless view mm. of the world that's true rather than, yeah, we, we all see the, the failures of communism still being a, a two, two-tier system or mm-hmm. multi-tier system. So no, I, th- I think um, with with regards to his book and his perception, I think when we when we look at poverty and how we can share out resources, I think that's probably a better way of describing it as opposed to eradicating hierarchy because we're not at, you know yeah. we're not going to eradicate that you know we are, this is this is what we're in and it's absolutely not going to change, but that is that distribution of wealth. So I can't remember what the number is, but there's. Um, I can't, I, I forgot what the number is, but it's something ridiculous, like, I don't know, 50 people own the amount of wealth in the whole world. I can't remember, it's probably not 50, but it's something yeah. very minute. It's a small number, yeah. And so when we think about actually the billionaires and where the, the wealth is distributed, it's that distribution of wealth and how that impacts people who are on the breadline, who are struggling, and there are far more people like that than the people who are the billionaires and 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 the highly wealthy. So so this it's something around distribute distributing wealth, not completely so that everyone has exactly the same, because like I said, that's not going to happen. We know that. But right now we can absolutely give as much as as much as we can really for, for those who have got some level of you know additional income. And that takes us back to the opening, which was striving for fairness. And that's that's really the, the crux of what you're saying there is is trying to create a fair and equitable society. And that's something we should all be mindful and strive for. I I believe so. And I I I I have been living like this for a long time. So and I'll I'll still continue to to be like this. Fabulous. Thanks, Pamela. It's been amazing catching up with you again. We've had a great chat now, and I hope you, the listener that got to the end with us, uh, have enjoyed this. I've got some inspiration, take something away from this. So how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, yes, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, and there is only one of me, so I'm quite easy to find. So Pamela Permally Bass, so just find me and you can connect with me. I do like using LinkedIn. I'm no no good at other social media, I must admit. So uh, you you won't find me anywhere else. So um, LinkedIn. I've also got a website, and again, I've kept it straightforward. It's my name, so Google that. You find me straight away, and there is also a section on the website where you can email me direct. So they're the, they're the sort of two routes to get in touch with me. Fabulous, and your name will be in the show notes, and so people could look it up and spell it. But it's your surname is P E R M A L L O O space B A W S Permalu Bass. Yeah, yeah. As you say. There could be only one, a bit like the uh, the Highlander in the old days, isn't it? <laughs> so, yes, so, yes, very, uh, always really, really love meeting new people. So if you connect with me, very happy to have a conversation. Thank you. For those of you listening, uh, please do subscribe to future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please share the love, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues. If you're not subscribed, then do click that button now and follow us for for more updates. Of course, I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up and we'll be hitting episode 100 in a couple of weeks' time. 
So I'm sure you'd be equally inspired by those people as well. And if you'd like to be a guest yourself, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchapman.co.uk. Finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.